We're in our final week of Advent this Sunday now before Christmas as we anticipate celebrating Christmas this week. And um, the series that we've been going through is not so much a look back as much as it is a look forward. We've been studying Jesus' return. That's what Advent is, is really not just a, a remembering that he was born, but a, a, an encouragement to look forward to his return. And that's what we focused heavily on. And we're not going to stop that this week because ultimately Christmas has a, 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 a special place in the remembering of or the thinking of Jesus' return and, and gives us hope for that. But let me just let me just kind of summarize where we've been so that you can kind of come into the service with me if you've not been with us. We've been building a doctrine week by week, and this is this is what we have come to. It doesn't answer all the questions, and I get that, and I know that, and I don't want to answer all the questions. I, th- I think it's an essential, just a core doctrine that we can all hold to. Jesus is coming. That's what he promised. That's what he said. He didn't give us all the details that we would like to have. He didn't tell us everything that we would like to know, but he said he's coming. And he warned us, live ready, ready that he could come at a moment or ready that he might he might tarry. So we live ready for any moment uh, that, that Jesus could return, and we live ready in such a way that we leave a gospel legacy behind us in case he tarries. Because we do this because there is no greater prize. There is no greater prize that we can have than him. Now, I used this illustration in the first service, and I don't know where it came from, but I thought of a, a person in 4-H and their prize hog, right? You know, you got this big, fat, juicy hog with lots of bacon, First prize. Yeah. Amen. That's right. First prize. I, I don't care if it's the best bacon you ever had. It's not worth it. There's no prize. There's no prize worthy of this. There's no, no nothing worth giving up uh, or, or nothing worth having instead of his return. This doctrine we've established, we've built it out over several weeks, and we've looked at his teaching. He taught this. He taught that he was returning as a comfort to his people. He knew how difficult it was going to get for them. He knew how difficult life could be and would be for them. And he said, please don't let your... Well, he didn't say please. He said, do not let your heart be troubled. John 1.14, do not let your heart be troubled. He's comforting them. I'm coming back for you. I'm going to go away, but I'm coming back. He, he taught these things. He taught about the coming kingdom to warn people, to encourage them, to heed his call, to think about and be ready, to, to think about and be prepared for what's to come. And he taught them this, that they might know that there is no other source of infinite joy. We sang of joy, joy to the world. There is no source of joy like this kind of joy. There's moments of happiness, but, but no joy, no lasting, eternal joy joy like the one we have to look forward to in his return. And now today as we stand here on this Sunday before Christmas, as we join, I I think there's a question that comes out of this that that just naturally comes out of it all. How can we be so certain? I mean, why would we spend the weeks doing this? Why, Why would we come to Christmas in this moment when we could be just talking about his birth or we could just be talking about the presents that are under the tree or, or, or we could just be having parties and getting together and, and, and maybe even sleeping in this morning? Why, why would we come here now? Why? Why? How can we be so sure? How can we be so certain? I mean, it's been 2,000 years for crying out loud. 
2,000 years. I mean, that's a long time. 2,000 years since he was born. Why would we assume? Why, why, how could we be so confident that he's coming back? I mean, I have trouble hanging on to something for a few months. This has been 2,000 years. I, 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 joined a, I joined a gym about a month ago. I know, you're thinking, you don't need a gym. I'm surprised at that. I know, I know what you're thinking. Man, I can already see your muscles just bumping out of your shirt. You know, Jim. But I'm having trouble even a month later. I mean, I'm like, I've, I've got other things to do. 2,000 years! Haven't we, haven't we wised up by now? Now, aren't we, haven't we evolved past our need for this crutch of religion and this crutch of things are going to get better one day? Haven't we just understood that it's, it's kind of crappy here? And we should just deal with it? No, we don't, do we really need it? How can we be so certain? That we would gather here. That we would celebrate Christmas, of all things. Well, I hope that's the question we'll answer. I, I think that's the question that comes out of what we've learned so far. And, and, and I hope in the text today, as we consider the kingdom promise, the promise that he made, that we won't just understand how we can still believe it, but how we should strive harder and harder and more intently to believe it and, and, and how we can count on it with confidence. Not some wishful thought, not some empty, uh, I hope it happens in the sense that I don't really have any certainty. It's just a wish. I wish it would happen. But how we can hold to a biblical perspective of hope and we can confidently expect it to occur. We're going to be in a, a very popular text. It's one you probably won't even need your Bible for, I would encourage you to open your Bible just because I think it's always worthwhile. John 3, 16. There's probably most of you in the room know this verse. You could say this verse without looking. You could read this verse. I mean, you could recite this verse. It's probably the one verse that, that most people have memorized. And I think, unfortunately, because of our familiarity with it, we sometimes miss the power that's behind it. And it's not a it's not a verse that you turn to for Christmas. It's not a verse that you turn to, to to find confidence in the end time. But I think it gives us both. Reason to celebrate. Reason to be certain in our celebration. So let's read it. Uh, let's, let's read it together. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Maybe, maybe one of the most popular, the most widely known verses of, of all time. And I'm, I'm glad it is. I mean, I, I think it's, it's a great verse to, to have so widely known. It gives us a picture of the gospel, a summary of the gospel. It doesn't answer, like, like our doctrine on the end times we've built over the last three weeks, it doesn't answer all the questions. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't give you all the intricate ins and outs of salvation and, and what's to come, but it, but it gives you a good summary. It gives you a good picture of what God has done to save and forgive sin. And it, it gives a picture, an expectation, or what we're responsible to do in light of his work. So here's, here's this verse given first to a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a pretty important guy in Israel. He, he was 
called by Jesus, the teacher of Israel. You're, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things. That's what Jesus said to him. And so what that tells us is that he is maybe a, a main teacher or maybe the primary teacher in Israel. Doesn't mean that he was like the high priest. We know he wasn't the high priest, but just because he didn't have the responsibilities of the temple and the sacrifices doesn't mean he didn't carry the respect and authority to say something and people believe it. You see, it worked out like this in, in the village, one of the villages we work in in Africa. There was a guy who we were told when we first went there that he was the imam. And the imam, in our minds, when we hear that word, we immediately associate that with the, the person over the mosque in this village. He was not that man, though. And we, we were just going around thinking he's the imam. He's the man. He's the man at the mosque. We hardly ever saw him go to the mosque. And we didn't understand how they would have these prayer times. And he wasn't in the mosque. But he was the imam. In the perspective of the people in the village... His, his understanding of the, of the Quran, his understanding and perspectives that he drew out of the Quran were they carried authority, they carried weight, and people, people looked at him as a spiritual leader. This was Nicodemus, a very important, prominent man in Israelite life, in Jewish life. And he's coming to Jesus at night. He's, he's coming, and they think it's because he was trying to stay secret that he didn't want the whole world knowing that he's going to, to talk to this, this up-and-coming person, this, this, this person outside of the tradition, he comes to him and he says, Rabbi, we know you're from God. We know you're from God. You know how he says, how they know it? The power that Jesus had been exhibiting, the, the, the power to heal, the power to, to make the blind see, the deaf hear and the lame walk, the power to turn, uh, to, to do miraculous things. He, he saw his power. He's like, I, we, we know you're from God. And I'm sure that Nicodemus had this whole list of questions and this whole list of things that he had. That I, I just got to hear your perspective on this. I got I to know if it lines up with what we think and, and how we believe and what we say the Scriptures say. I, I got to know. Before he could ask his first question, Jesus preempted that. And he begins to teach him about this new life in the kingdom of God. And he says to him things that just blew his mind. I mean, Nicodemus is sitting there and he's like, what? I got to be born again? How's a guy my size get back in my mother's womb? And I'm not trying to be, that's the scripture, right? That's the Bible. I'm not trying to be crude or crass. I'm just saying, how's a guy my size get back in my mother's womb? That's, that's Nicodemus's dilemma. Got to be born again? And Jesus is like Nicodemus. You're the teacher. You don't know these things. You see, Jesus was coming to him, this, this whole new perspective on eternal life, this whole new understanding of the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was blown away. See, this is an entry point maybe for him. We don't know a whole lot about Nicodemus's life, at least from the Scripture. We don't know a whole lot except that at the end of John, after Jesus' crucifixion, he came again. And he helped prepare Jesus' body, initially prepared Jesus' body for burial as they laid him in his tomb. Because obviously Jesus had an impact on Nicodemus' life. It says that he was a believer in secret. So this maybe for him was an entry point, but you and I now have heard this verse so many times. How can, I be, how can we be assured by it again? 
how can we, like Nicodemus, have our hearts encouraged and have our minds blown? How can we stand here today, 2,000 years later? Not just hoping in it for ourselves, but saying to people that this will comfort you. Saying that this is a warning worth hearing. Saying that there is infinite joy to come. You just think about how that sounds in our day. It's pretty ludicrous, right? Pretty unbelievable, right? I think his words show it. See, maybe for some of you it will be your entry point into the faith today, but for many of us, it demonstrates that reason for assurance. And I think first we see the reason for assurance. I think first we can look forward to Jesus' return with confident expectation because salvation is the work of God. And you can't even get into this verse. You can't even get into the depths and the heart and the, and the meat of this verse. You, got, you can't get past the first two words without having to deal with the source for God. I want you to just stop and think about that. If, if this verse had started with any other name, with any other person identified, I, I, want, I just put, that, put, put it there. For policemen so loved the world. And today, I don't... You know, maybe back at 9-11 when we began to see policemen and the military and firefighters as our modern-day heroes. But today... Now, here, please hear me say this. I think, by and large, our policemen ought to be admired. They do things that most of us aren't willing to do for us. But there is no denying, based on what we're seeing in the news, that people are losing hope in them. That there are some. There are some that that are doing things we can't understand and can't comprehend. And it's a difficult thing for us to watch. And so by and large, in our culture, we've taken the hero away from policemen. And in fact, many people, many people have just plastered, just, just taken the idea that they're just all bad. I think that's a, I think that's a wrong uh, application. I think is a wrong way to respond to that. But what I think we can understand is that if this verse had them as our savior, I think we can see they're not. For Obama so loved the world. You know, he came to us. He came, he came promoting change. Change we can believe in. Change. Something to hope for. I mean, there was pictures of him with, with hope written underneath of it as if he was some savior. He's providing hope. And his new, his, when he ran this last time, his, his new slogan that replaced that first one was forward. I don't really know what that means. And 
my assumption is that he means progress. You know, we're going to move forward. We're going to make progress. Let's not think about what's behind. Let's think about what's ahead. And I, I don't really know. But today, now, currently, he's at his lowest approval rating. And, and whether that really means anything potentially about how good he's been as a president or not, I, I, I don't really know. I think only history and time will tell. But what it does help us see is that only 40% of people approve of his work in office now because only 40, because increasingly people who supported him are leaving him because they're recognizing he doesn't have all that he promised. And just so you don't think I'm, I'm down on Democrats and down on our president, I wouldn't want his job. Nobody can win in that job, I don't think, anymore. George W. Bush, let's, for George W. Bush, Lord G.W., so loved the world. That doesn't help any either, does it? I can remember when he was running for president, how Christians, man, they just got behind him. They thought he was the answer. A Christian president, all the things that are wrong with our country, we're going to fix them. He's our answer. I remember sitting in prayer meetings that just went on and on about the answer being George W. Bush. I, I think he's proven he wasn't the answer. You know, the reality is that he started in, in his first year of presidency, 9-11-2001, he enjoyed 90, after 9-11-2001, he enjoyed 90% approval rating. 90% of every person in this country. You think about the, how big a deal this is. 90% of people approved of the work he was doing. You know, we were united around this common enemy, Right? And so it wasn't that we were attacking our president then. We were actually getting behind him and supporting him. It's a totally different perspective when he's doing what we want him to do. This tragedy had united us, and, and, and 90% of people, Democrat and Republican alike, appreciated George Bush. By the time he left, his lowest point just before he left had dipped to like 22 or 23, 24%, according to the Gallup polls. And by the time he left office, 30%. You know what that proves? Not that he was a good or bad president. But even the Christians who had hoped in him had found he was no savior. He may have been a good president. I don't really know how to measure that anymore. But his name doesn't belong in this verse, does it? And just to make sure you understand, I'm not just beating up on dudes. What if we said, for Hillary Rodham Clinton, so loved the world. See, we're all about just bashing everybody here. We want to include everyone. Nobody belongs in that spot, right? If any other name is there other than God, it loses its weight. It becomes a meaningless platitude. But because Jesus, and you think about who Jesus was, the one recognized by the teacher. That's how Jesus phrased it. The teacher in Israel came to him in secret looking for answers because he saw his power. This man, Jesus, the most influential, by far the most influential person that has ever lived. 
the most powerful person who has ever lived. Who did he point to? For God. That inspires me. That gives me assurance and gives me hope. Now, admittedly, I, we we gotta we gotta admit this. We gotta be open about this. There's no sense in denying it. It doesn't inspire hope and assurance in everyone, does it? It doesn't make everybody feel better. I mean, there's plenty of people out there who deny the existence of God, who would say, "Oh, there's no reason to believe in God." Their denial, their denial is not reason for us to lose hope. The scripture teaches in Psalms 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. What does it declare? The glory of God. Not just his existence, but his glory, his shining presence, his, his powerful existence, his glory, his worthiness of worship. It, it defines him. It, it demonstrates him. It, it screams of it. Step outside. Take a look around. It declares the glory of God. Even on a, on a gray, dreary day like today, on a cold, dreary day when we want to curl up inside in front, of a, in front of a movie, step outside and see the glory of your God. See it. It declares it night and day. Romans 1, 19-24, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God has not kept himself secret. He has not hidden himself from you. He has made sure that he is evident for his invisible attributes, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power. You see that? Namely, his eternal power, a power so big, so massive, so, so far-reaching. It makes my big muscle seem measly. It means the greatest, strongest I can get at the gym, if I can stick to it, is nothing. It exists outside of time. It exists outside of my finite perspective. It can accomplish things that I can't even fathom. His eternal power and his divine nature, his godliness is seen. It's made evident. Namely, these things have been demonstrated. They have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. Step outside. Take a look around. Spend some time just thinking about the massive expanse of the sea, about the massive heights of the mountains and the grandeur the forests but even 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 the things we do can't help but glorify him i, I was standing i visited chicago uh like a year and a half ago with my sons the first time i was able to do this and i was standing on the the sky deck on in the willis tower and i was looking out and i snapped a picture i was so moved it's how big it you know it seemed not just the willis tower but looking out at chicago all the way around you you walk around the whole perimeter of this building you look out and, and see what man has accomplished and the things that they have done 
And it's so impressive. I mean, it's, there's, there's certainly a demonstration of wisdom and insight and understanding and smarts and a, a demonstration of our technological advances and a demonstration of our strength and our ability to, to, to bring the creation under control. There's certainly a demonstration of those things. But yet, even they, as I stood there amazed by it, I, I suddenly it dawned on me that even they screamed to the glory of God because you and I exist under the glory of God. There's nothing you can look at. No, no, no scheme of man, no, no perspective, no understanding, no education, no scientific exploration, no, 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 no extent by which we can further and advance ourselves. No, nothing that you and I can do that remove His glory because we exist under it. You see, under His eternal power and under His divine nature, everything cries out to the glory of God. And it doesn't matter if we deny it. It doesn't remove it. You see, we can ignore it all day long. And there are people that ignore it all day long that admittedly would come to a verse like this and it means nothing to them. (laughs) Because even... Like in the broader context of this passage we're reading from in John 3.19, he says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people love the darkness rather than the light. We're surrounded. We live in a world that denies it, that shuts their eyes to the light, that cringes in the darkness. I love my little God better. I love my lie better. I love my sin better. I love my little sin better. But for those of us that have stepped out into this light, brothers and sisters, you know it. Don't you know it? This verse brings assurance and hope because salvation, eternal life, comes from a faithful God. A God who not only created, but a God who chose to be your Savior. He chose to be your Savior. That leads us to the second point. See, we look forward to Jesus' return with confident expectation because salvation is motivated by God's love, not obligation. He chose this. He decided to do this. This faithful God decided to do this, decided to express himself in this way. Now, I I guess I, I think if he was obligated to save us in some way, if he was obligated for that, I think we could still count on it. I think it could still give us hope, but I don't think it would fill me with the joy that it does today. I don't think I would, I would find the, the hope that I, that I have. You know, I don't think I would look forward to a God so much that, that just had to do it. I mean, what if I, what if I came to you and said, Hey, hey, you know, I, I did this great thing for you, but I didn't really want to. I had to. Doesn't that, doesn't that lose something there? You see, this is how he loved you. That's what that phrase means, for God so loved. This is how he loved you. That's so, it's not about an extent or a, a bigness of the love. It doesn't mean he loved you so much. It means this is how he did it. He sent his son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
Now, I think, I, I believe that in this, we also learn not just how he loved us, but the majesty of his love, the, the length and the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of his love. I think we can see it. Because over and over and over through this verse, we are dim and we are brought face to face with the bigness and the power of this love. God, his love is generous, not sparing. It, it, it goes so far. It, it goes so wide. It, it's, it's such a big thing. He's not holding it back. It's not like you needed a dollar and he gave you a quarter and hoped you found the rest. He loved you generously. He didn't send just an emissary. He didn't, it's not like he was playing chess and brought forth a pawn. It's not like he's, he, he's looking at this as something that's expendable. He didn't send an angel. He didn't look at Michael and say, hey, you know, I, I know they're going to kill you, but I can make another one. So, so go tell them about this. He sent his one and only begotten son. One and only. There's not another one like him. In the beginning, before the foundations of the world, there was Jesus, God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. There's one son. Now today, there's all kinds of adopted sons and daughters. There's adopted children all over the place. But there is still only one begotten. His name is Jesus. This is how generously God loved you. You, see, you know how you know it's generous? Because the size of the sacrifice. If a guy has a million bucks and he gives you a thousand, you might feel pretty good about that. But is that a generous act? If a guy has 10,000 bucks and gives you a thousand bucks, which do you think is more generous? His one and only begotten son. He sent him. God's love is generous. It's not sparing. God's love is beneficial. It's not useless. It's beneficial. It, it accomplishes a good thing for us. Now, this is not the place that most people rest. When the world reads this verse, they emphasize his love. But do you see the default place where people reside in this verse? The default position of the world is perishing. You see, we don't have to get to a place where change happens and perishing exists. That's just where we are. His love actually is given as an alternative. His love actually offers up an alternative. So it's like we're iPhones, and our default setting is perishing. Right? And so if you want something different, you got to flip the switch, right? you got to get it to go from white to green. you got to get it to move. We're perishing. Even in, his, even in the further teaching, as he expounds it further in verse 18, Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. It's because we're already there. Not because, not because, not, not because well, you, you, you um, are, are moving into condemnation and your lack of belief is condemning you then. The moment you start, the moment you step, the moment you breathe, the moment you enter into this world, the, and David, according to his, his understanding of it, the moment of conception, he was fallen, sinful man. Perishing. But God's love is beneficial. It offers us an alternative. God's love is sufficient to be given to the whole world. Do you see that? 
Who did he love? For God so loved the world. Now there's commentators that, man, they, they struggle with this verse and people who are going to hold to their, their doctrinal perspectives before they'll just look at the scripture and they're going to say, well, that means a certain people. But I think in my reading and my understanding, my study, I, I think the reality is, is this talks about mankind, the humanity, people who have existed. God has loved them all in this way. He's given them opportunity to know eternal life. It's given them the opportunity. It's sufficient to be given to the whole world. But it's only efficient to those who will believe. See, there's a reality that, that many people will come to this verse like Nicodemus, and it will be their entry point. It'll be that moment that their lives are radically changed. It'll be the piece of information that changes their perspective, and they recognize, I am perishing. My thoughts, my beliefs, everything I've held to, everything I've hoped in, everything I trusted in is failing me. It will not save me, but, but in Christ I can have eternal life. For many people, they'll come to this moment, and it'll be the entry point. But for many people, it'll be that moment that they come to, and they see and experience and hear of this God who loves so powerfully. And all they will ever experience is the opportunity of his effective love that actually gives life. You see, God's love is sufficient to be given to the whole world, but it is only efficient for those who trust him. This is that great love. And if you have trusted him and you have believed him, this love has not just left you in perishing It's not left you in your default mode, but it has moved you to eternal life. Which brings me to the last perspective of his love is that it is eternal, not temporary. See, God's love, God's love is not for a moment in in which you experience some, some emotional rush and experience of your first faith. That's where we enter. And that's where we reside. God's love moves you to everlasting, never-ending life. It's like here's the dot on the map. Here's the entry point. Boom, you are saved. You are alive. And that timeline of your life begins to extend from that dot. And you could draw that line around this room and you could come back to this dot. And you know what? It doesn't end there. It doesn't stop. You'd have to draw another line around the room and you come back and, and that dot, that was your life. But this line is your life in Christ. It never ends and you can keep on going. You can color the wall with Sharpie. And He still loves you. His love is still washing over you. His beneficial, sacrificial, good effort on your behalf is still just washing over you. And here's the reality. I mean, if it stopped, that's, that's not life anymore. It's the reality of the eternal life is that we live in his love forever and ever and ever. And so in 10,000 years into eternity, we are still being loved. And 10,000 years beyond that, we are still being loved. So we look forward with confidence because he's done this out of his great love. And finally, the third point I think that this passage, this this one verse gives us. See, we look forward to Jesus' return with confident expectation because his work is only complete when we have received life beyond this 
life. You see, this verse doesn't read, it doesn't say, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that they could have their best life now. I mean, if this is it, it's not much, right? I could have slipped in today if this was it. I mean, there wouldn't really be a lot to celebrate when we gather around the Christmas tree, would there? I mean, imagine if this, if this was it. Would we be any different than the children who hope in Santa? If this was it, would we be any different than the people who gather at company parties and get drunk and celebrate for a night? If this is it, I mean, if this life is it, is it really anything to be celebrated? Is there any reason to remember the birth of a Savior? If this is it, if this is it, He says he came to deliver us to eternal life, to life everlasting, to life unending, to life with with new hearts and new minds and, and new bodies that aren't stained and tempted by sin, that don't have desires for other things than him. Or at least those desires are in the right priority. And he's first and all those desires come secondary. And he is our God and he is with us and, and we are his and we are with him. You see, this, this, isn't, this verse isn't just speaking about what we have now. It's speaking about what we have when he returns. When the faith that we see through dim or, or through cloudy glass with becomes sight, that moment when he steps into this world and we can see him in his flesh and the scars on his hands and feet and, the, and, and on his head. When he steps into our creation and, he, and, the, and the trumpet sounds and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. When that happens, brothers and sisters, let me tell you, we, we will have known. That's what we're looking forward to. And how then can we be so confident? Because he came to begin the work. Because he came on Christmas night. Because he was born of a virgin and laid in a manger because he came. And we sing songs all the time. Well, not all the time. It's two songs I know of that are popular today that speak of the creation to the cross. I love them. And I'll probably continue to sing them just as, just as vigorously as I, as I do now. And we go to Africa and we tell these stories in Africa about the creation to the cross about how God has always been working towards us, this redemptive history that God has been working towards as he approaches the cross. And those are glorious stories. They are glorious songs to sing. But brothers and sisters, if we stop at the cross, we're missing out on the assurance. Not because the cross isn't important. Please don't hear me say the cross isn't important. The cross is meaningful because now he wears a crown. You see, the cradle's important because he went from the cradle to the cross. And the cross is important because he went from the cross and now wears a crown and sits in heaven with all authority. You see, we can have this hope because Jesus is our assurance. And from the creation to the cradle, to the cross, and on to the crown, we can now stand looking forward to the moment of his return, finding our confidence in that. 
We can trust he's coming because he has come. We can trust he's coming because he paid the price. We can trust he's coming because in his love there is nothing that will keep him from bringing you from this life to eternal life. That's the work he's doing. And so today, as we come the Sunday before Christmas, we look forward to his return to provide meaning for this moment, to provide hope and joy. And we look back and remember he came so we can look forward to his coming. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful for the work you've done through your son. I'm grateful for the promise we have in him. Grateful that you loved us in this way. Grateful that you loved us this majestically, this completely, this unconditionally. Thank you, thank, thank you. I just this dawned on me, Father. Just to, I just want to praise you. Just there's not a mention of our worthiness in this in this passage. There's not a mention. This comes from you. Fill us up with it, that we might live ready that we might live expectantly, that we might experience a taste of the joy to come even now. Because you have loved us so abundantly. Father, I, I would ask in this moment, you know who's sitting in this room, I would ask, Father, that you bring each to life that by your spirit they might be born again, that they might see this truth and have a deep and longing desire to step into your light. That they might believe. That they might trust your son. Father, I just ask these things. By the power of the spirit and the promise of your son. It's in his name. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.